welcome to episode 170 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Andrew Swafford. And today we are joined by a new participant for Cinematary, uh, Miss Candace Sisson is joining us. Candace, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure to be incredibly nice and incredibly uh, warm and thoughtful and et cetera and whatever. Um, I would expect Sounds like you. you. I'm just describing myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In part one, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week. And in part two, we will be continuing our series on the Archers with 1946, A Matter of Life and Death or Stairway to Heaven if you're in America. Um, But before we do that, let us talk. Let's do movies that we saw this week. Um, We talked about it a little bit last week, but let's let's get into briefly uh, the latest Marvel movie, Thor Ragnarok. Uh, Like I said last week, it's directed by Taika Waititi. It stars all the Thor people. You have Google. You can look that up. Um, And it stars, you know, Thor fighting people and fighting Kate Blanchett and fighting the Hulk and. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't really want to read the whole uh, read the whole synopsis the second straight week. Um, but yeah, all three of us saw it. Um, I don't know, Andrew. What did you uh, What did you think of Thor Ragnarok? My feelings as are somebody who similar. I know is not a big Marvel person. Yeah, I, I was very much looking forward to this movie though, just uh, as a fan of Taika Waititi and being interested in the way that the comic book movie studios are starting to latch on to. Uh, directing talent rather than just hiring lackeys who will do whatever it is the producer wants them to do. Um, you know, we had Wonder Woman. Uh, we we have this next year. We have Black Panther and and Aquaman with with James Wan at the helm. Uh, so this felt like it might represent some sort of turning point in the world of comic book movies. Uh, and I think. To a certain extent, it is. Uh, you definitely do get a lot of the authorial voice of Taika Waititi. Apparently, a lot of this movie is improvised. Uh, that is felt at times, especially when Taika Waititi's character, Korg, is on screen, who, who kind of steals the show. Uh, but I do think... I mean, I share a lot of the same sentiments as Jessica from last week. Like, there, there is a really great movie in here uh, that, that feels a little bit more like a, a, a loose hangout Taika Waititi film, but it's nestled within this, like, very large behemoth of a Marvel movie that keeps cutting back to uh, this frame story that doesn't really have um, much of a... I don't know, dramatic buy-in or payoff or anything like that. Um, and there are a lot of, of short detours uh, to connections of, to other places in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like when Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange shows up, uh, for example. Um, or, you know, there, there's a bunch of stuff on Asgard with Loki that doesn't necessarily feel like it fits into the the whole puzzle it's just a way of stitching this to a lot of the other marvel movies and there's so many of them that the the stitching kind of takes over the the full tapestry so to speak yeah i'll i'll I'll, i definitely agree with you there because the first like 25 minutes of this movie feels like a completely different thing like it almost feels like taika waititi wasn't directing the first 25 minutes it was like somebody else and then like 30 minutes in whenever thor is cast out of asgard it's like taika took over it it should start with him getting 
um, kidnapped by Jeff Goldblum's planet, that that government. I mean, you could do it the way that Mad Max Free Road opens, right? Like, we don't need to establish who Max is, but he's in trouble and he's to get out of trouble. Like, that's all we need to know. We know who Thor is. We've had, like, five or six movies of that. (laughs) Come on. Yeah, because I mean, we've we, there's been Marvel cameos in the past, but the the Doctor Strange one just seemed it was just so like I was kind of going, why yeah. the hell are we here? Like, what is what is going and apparently on here? It opens with um, a um, an in joke to Sherlock fans. Apparently, the address where he is told to meet Doctor Strange is some sort of Sherlock Holmes reference. You know, Benedict Cumberbatch plays Sherlock Holmes in the BBC thing, and you know these movies have enough. Uh, f- fan service and callbacks to other material without extending beyond the actual Marvel properties. Like, do we really need to start uh, uh, colonizing other fandoms and, and integrating them into this stuff? Uh, I'm gonna, I think not. I'm gonna take a stab and say that both fandoms probably intersect a little bit. Oh, for sure, uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, but Candace, I know you saw this as well. What did you think of Thor Ragnarok? Yeah, um, I would agree with you all. So I will just like admit I had I didn't see the first Thor. I don't know how I missed it, but I didn't see the first one. So it was still easy to follow along with this one. Um, and I agree, like the beginning kind of felt like a little too much. And the detour into Doctor Strange was, you know, I think I got enough Doctor Strange in the Doctor Strange movie. So I was <laughs> good to like go ahead and move on from that. But otherwise, it it just felt really fun. Like I almost would have just preferred to not have to have to stitch it into the Marvel tapestry to take Andrew's phrase and just let it be its own little fun hangout movie. And I think I would have enjoyed it more. But I did enjoy it a lot. As it yeah, because it, it, I mean, even though it has its issues and and you know some of the plot points don't always. Um, make much sense. I think that it is. It, it it's very fun. It's a very funny movie. Uh, you mentioned Korg, the Taika Waititi character. He is in, yeah. It, it's it's like somebody from Hunt for the Wilder People or What We Do in the Shadows is just implemented into a Marvel movie, which is wonderful. Um, and it, it seems kind of like all of these actors are having like a really good time during this movie. J- Jeff Goldblum kind of shows up, and you can kind of, you can tell that he's <laughs> improvising most of his lines because he's just kind of. Mm-hmm. It's like he showed up a couple days on set and just starts rattling stuff off um doing you know jeff goldblum things um i had like a like a uh i I discovered like my sexual preference at the end of the movie when tessa thompson's valkyrie character like shows up and there's like um rainbow confetti shooting out of the ship and she's like <laughs> doing like this slow-mo walk and I was I like I audibly went oh my god and the people next to me were kind of looking at me because I was there was there was too much I was over I was over you know overloaded in that in that point in the movie um but I thought that I I think that there is a lot just kind of entertainment if you're going to this as a as a kind of you know fun popcorn movie i think that there's enough of that to to hold you over even if you aren't following these marvel movies because i think that once like once they they go to the planet with jeff goldblum and it becomes this kind of straight comedy uh it, it does it, it does feel like something that taika watiti would have his hands on and uh yeah i don't know too, i, I too, really I, I did enjoy too quick 
responses to that. One, I would say that to look at the movie in general, if I just had to sum up the tone of the movie in one word, I think I probably would go for fun. But it's only a fun movie when it's being a Taika Waititi movie. And there are huge swaths of this thing that do not feel like that at all. You're, you're getting these huge tonal shifts uh, back and forth between the more cookie-cutter cookie like studio product and this you know, auteurist hangout thing. Um, and so anytime it cuts from Jeff Goldblum's gladiator planet back to Asgard and whatever's going on with Kate Blanchett, I immediately lost interest or I, I learned to lose interest in those sections because they would be these, you know, 10 to 20 minute segments of the film where, um, there, there wasn't really development and there's, and there's not humor to speak of uh, and Kate Blanchett I think is criminally underused uh, she has a great uh, character design uh, she, she's like th- this this really incredibly just designed thing in this movie especially when she has her antlers like flare up but her character like she doesn't have a character she has a look but she doesn't have a character and Really, Jeff Goldblum could be the villain of this movie. We could cut out Cape Lanchette's part, and the movie would still be fine. It would be structurally intact. Uh, and honestly, like as much as I love all of the casting in this film, there are a lot of characters that are underutilized. Cape Lanchette is a really good example. I think Tessa Thompson is underutilized in this movie. Like You could technically cut her character out. The only thing that she really adds to the story is that she helps Thor get out of the window when he's trapped in this gladiator hotel room. Uh, There there are other ways to tell that story. Like, I just don't... I don't see a reason for a lot of these characters being here except for, A, the studio needed these characters to be set up in this movie, uh, or B... Uh, star power to get people in the door, and it worked for me. Like it, I wanted to see Tessa Thompson and Jeff Goldblum and Kate Blanchett dressed the way they are in this film, but narratively, it doesn't it doesn't work in in the way that the trailers promise it will. I'm not going to tell anybody to not put Tessa Thompson in a movie, so I'm going to step away from that. <laughs> I thought she did a good job of like connecting the whole like backstory of. Kate Blanchett's character to what was going on with Jeff Goldblum's little game Spaceland. So I don't know. I wouldn't say that you could cut her out. I think that that stuff is just very uh, half baked, though. If you're if you're going to go into the history of Asgard and like the history of the Valkyries and I don't know uh, Thor's family colonizing the planet or something like that, I think they needed to lean into it a lot more than they did. I've seen a lot of takes on Twitter, people talking about. Thor Ragnarok is about colonialism, and I, I guess if I squint, I can kind of see like the concept is there, but I really don't think that they um, tell a story about that. It's just in the background somewhere. I'll agree with that. I read that online, and then when I went to see the movie, I kept looking for when that was going to pop up. Mm-hmm. It's been a great amount of energy waiting for it to make itself. Obvious. <laughs> it's it just in that painting on the ceiling of the throne room, and then it's gone. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I can't. It, it, I would. I'll, I will say though that at least there's at least more energy in the. You know, the, even though it, it may not have enough Taika Waititi moments, there's at least more energy in those moments than in. 
a lot of the more recent Marvel movies, especially like the Doctor Strange movie and a couple others where it just kind of feel it feels even more cookie cutter uh, than that. But uh, yeah, Thor Ragnarok, it's in theaters now. Uh, you know, I'm, if you if you if you're into those things, it's it's there for you. Um, another new release, though, that we wanted to talk about real quickly is the killing of a sacred deer. Uh, and Andrew, I know you saw this and had some strong feelings about it. I have some strong feelings. Um, so, intro to this movie for people who are unaware: "Killing of a Sacred Deer" is by Yorgos Lanthimos. He's a Greek director. Uh, he is considered the point man for this new cinema movement called Greece's Weird Wave. It also has this woman, Athena Rachel Sangari, uh, who made a really great film called Chevalier. Um, but Yorgos Lanthimos, I've seen three of his films now, and he has this very distinct style. Uh, his characters deliver this stilted robotic dialogue. He uses this really intense, intrusive music that is reminiscent of The Shining. Uh, He's always using symmetry and framing in, in ways that are meant to be very foreboding for the audience. And most notable for me, he his movies seem to take place in these alternate worlds where people speak with no emotion whatsoever, uh, and people are trying to regulate the natural processes of their life with these really complicated systems. Uh, his One of his older movies, Dogtooth, is about a family psychologically manipulating their kids to try and shelter them from the outside world. The Lobster is this dystopian film where finding a romantic partner is this huge bureaucratic process. Um, And I had admired both of those films a lot for um, just the central ideas about humanity trying to apply this one-size-fits-all solution to these organic human processes. The the Lobster, wasn't that on our top ten last year? It was. I feel like it was in the top five, too. Um, I really loved The Lobster last year. Um, And I just, I I dig what Lanthimos is doing as an auteur most of the time. Uh... Killing of a Sacred Deer breaks this mold he's established for himself in a lot of ways. Um, one, he's not really dealing with any sort of alternate reality, so to speak. I mean, I know that Dogtooth technically could take place in our world, but it doesn't feel like it does uh, be, because it's it's all about like creating this false version of reality for the kids. Killing of a Sacred Deer is... Just a movie about a family set in the suburbs. They're both doctors, and some awful stuff happens to them over the course of the film. And and they still talk like Yorgos Lanthimos characters. Everything is completely dry and emotionless, and they, they say things that normal human beings would not say or share with one another, but they do not react in any sort of way. Uh, you were just kind of seeing these robots interfacing with each other over the course of the film. Uh, It is an adaptation of a Greek myth called Iphigenia, I believe is how you pronounce it. Um, I don't know if I can necessarily spoil this movie or not. I mean, the myth is thousands of years old, but uh, the trailers have been very coy about telling any sort of details about what the film entails. I'll, I'll give, I'll give, a hint, which is that um, Colin Farrell is this doctor. Uh, he has killed a patient, or a patient has died on his operating table recently. The child of this patient he takes under his wing. Uh, the child seems to have some sort of vendetta against Colin Farrell's character and ruins his life, so to speak. Um, 
there are a lot of details as to how exactly the life gets ruined that I won't go into. But um, for me, this movie just did not work uh, on a on a practical level. Um, the the way that the characters work, the way that Lanthimos captures this world, doesn't make sense because it doesn't resemble any any type of reality that we know. And there's also not like a central conceit that makes his weird awkwardness uh, uh, justified in any way. So you're you're just kind of watching people who don't feel like real people. It doesn't feel like it serves any sort of narrative purpose. It doesn't seem like it serves any thematic purpose. It's not about any of the things that his other films were about. It's not about people trying to regulate their lives one in one way or another. Um, it's just pure sadism. It is is just this horrible, uh, uh, like bloodthirsty boy waging war against this family and it just it just becomes very violent and very cynical and there's there's no beating heart at the center of the movie despite the fact that as uh reed ramsey former cemetery participant uh pointed out in his letterbox review the movie's opening shot is a literal heart beating uh like on an operating table so that is an as a nice image that you get to look at for like a minute and a half at the beginning of this film uh lanthimos seems to just revel in showing you these horrific uh grotesque acts of violence um and even small acts of violence like he captures them with this kind of uh, tactility, this very intimate tactility where you feel every like scrape against somebody's skin, uh, even if it's not quite on the level of what you might normally expect with movie violence. Like there's a scene where uh, a character is walking and just falls flat on their face and it just really hurts. It, it smarts to watch that as an audience member. And that's the kind of thing that he seems to be interested in more so than anything else. I can't find any sort of narrative justification for a how the characters interact b why this movie is as violent as it is c how it fits in with lanthimos's work as an auteur it just felt like you know brutal sadism for a full two hours the movie is far too long uh, as well it at near the one hour mark is when you get introduced to the actual conflict of the film. Everything up to that is just spinning its wheels. And then once you get the conflict, it's given to you as this prophecy. And then you just see the prophecy play out in uh, a very tedious and um, painful detail uh, for, for another full hour. There's no humanity here. There's no ideas here. It's a very, very hollow film. And I, I was, and, and I have become increasingly frustrated by reading reviews of this thing in which people seem to want to defend it just because it seems like a dark or serious or gritty movie. Um, like just because it's playing in an art house theater and just because it seems somber does not mean it is good or interesting or meaningful it i think that cinephiles have a knee-jerk reaction to try and defend films like that 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 mainstream audiences are not going to seek out but this is not the hill to die on like this is not the lobster there there is i really just don't see any redeeming value in this thing and i i don't know how to interface with people who 
were like, oh, wow, I, I just thought it was so disturbing. I thought it was so intense how disturbing it was. Like, why do you go to the movies? Like, are do you just want people to fuck with you? Because... I did not enjoy being fucked with for no reason. Uh, and I, there are plenty of movies where, you know, the directors clearly are fucking with you that I do enjoy, like Funny Games or Antichrist or something like that. I even talked about Martyrs a couple weeks ago. Like, that's a very intense, bloody film. But in all three of those films, it feels like there's an authorial voice. It feels like there is a intent behind everything that happens in the film. Not so in Killing of a Sacred Deer. It is. It, it just feels like an excuse to revel in some really horrendous shit. I do not recommend seeking it out. (laughs) (laughs) That became very personal at the end. (laughs) I feel like you were speaking through through the headphones to a number of people. Um, It's kind of interesting. It seems like you've almost taken, like, compared to how you felt about The Lobster, this almost seems like uh, how, uh, you know... uh, you know, usual participant on Cinematary Nathan Smith feels about yeah. a lot of Yorgos Lanthimos' films. And I know that um, Nathan probably sees Lanthimos as this guy guy who is just a, a trendy name in art house film that you know new new cinephile bros feel like they need to uh, justify their their movie cred by saying they like his movies. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, I I do think there's value in a lot of the things that he does. Um, however, this is not one of those things. I, one of the things I feel like is redemptive about the lobster. A it's it's built it's built in a very um, uh, purposeful way where, where all of the the flourishes of the world building and all of the the small acts of violence feel like they add up to something greater um, and he also balances some of that cynicism and some of that brutality with a a great sense of dark humor like it's a it's a difficult line to walk but I think that he does it really well and th- one thing that I didn't mention earlier is that killing of a sacred deer is a very joyless movie there there are no um, lines that I think are meant to be uh, read in a humorous way. Um, Not that that would necessarily save the film, because again, like there's just not enough substance to it for for any of this stuff to feel uh, worthwhile. But there's also just no levity either. And that just makes it all the worse. (laughs) All right. Um, Well, Killing of Sacred Deer, it's in theaters now. Let's move on to a movie that we're much more excited to talk about. I think we can agree with that. Um, and that is Columbus, uh, the, the debut feature film for the writer-director Koga Nada. Uh, if you've watched a number of, of Ozu's films, you're familiar with that name. Um, but Columbus, it came out earlier this year. It, it seemed like it kind of jumped around to very select art house theaters, um, but it is now available on multiple VOD platforms. Uh, I watched it on, and I think Andrew did as well, for $5. You can rent it on Amazon or on iTunes. You can also rent it on Amazon and other other platforms like that. Um, but Columbus, is, it, it's about this uh, this uh, Korean-born man played by John Cho who works in, in Seoul as a translator, and he finds himself in Columbus, Indiana, which is this uh, this architecture, modernist ar- architecture mecca. Uh, all of the kind of great 20th century architects have built something in this town, and 
you know, it, it, it seems to be kind of this place that architects and architectural students come to to study in. Um, and his father is, is, is an architect uh, and, and I think works at the, you know, in the in the local area and is, is known there. But he and he has, uh, you know, fallen ill and is in a coma, which is why John Cho's character has come to Columbus and while he's there, he's kind of just wandering around the city uh, because, his, you know, there's there's not much he can do to, to help his father. And while he's kind of wandering around, he meets this young woman played by Haley Lou Richardson, who uh, is, lives in Columbus. She's staying there with her mother, who's a recovering addict um, rather than she, she's just finished high school. And she is kind of foregoing going to college at the moment because she just feels much more like like it's her duty to stay with her mom and make sure her mom's kind of straightened out her path. Um, and uh, Parker Posey also has a role as this uh, instructor and, and longtime student of John Cho's character's father, who was kind of helping him along with the uh, with the with the various things he has to attend to with his with his dad. Um, but this was a movie that I was very, very, very excited to see. I heard about it a, uh, during the summer. I read about it. Um, Koganada, if you're not familiar with him, he uh, did a lot of video essays about Ozu and uh, Richard Linklater and a number of other filmmakers for uh and Terrence Malick for um, BFI, Sight and Sound, Criterion Collection. Uh, you can find them on his Vimeo page um, if you go to Vimeo uh, and, and search Koganada. And they're they're kind of different from video essays that you're used to seeing. Um, they're much more visual essays where, for instance, a lot of his ones about Ozu, it, it's not like he's, it's not like the ones that Andrew and I have made for the website were kind of, you know, breaking down and talking talking about you know a topic related to film he just kind of he shows he, he takes moments from films and kind of just plays them whether you know maybe just one at a time or will you know intersplice have them have three different screens up showing moments and kind of tells a, a story about the director or the you know the auteur in that way um and you can sense I think that I mentioned Ozo a lot because you can sense a lot of his presence in this movie um, from the shot compositions to the uh, cut from action to kind of pillow shots around the around the town to just kind of the it, it, the, the story feels much, you know, especially the the drama between. Haley Lou Richardson and her duty to kind of stay with her mother seems very steeped in in a lot of the stories that you see from Ozu, um, and uh, yeah, I, I've I've been thinking. I watched this 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 past weekend, and I've been thinking all week about a lot of the shots and the compositions of those. But I, I think we'll talk about that in a second, Andrew. I'm curious to hear what you thought about Columbus. Well, I I completely share your sentiment that ever since I watched the movie, I've thought about little else other than the movie. Um, and it, I feel like this is one of those cases where it, it, I'm very acutely aware of the fact that it's easy to talk about a movie that doesn't work for me because I know exactly what the problem is. Uh, but when there's a movie that just hits you in, in a very personal place, it's, it's hard to articulate like what about the movie is great. But Columbus is great. Like this, this is one of the the best films of the year, in my opinion. Um, it, gosh, where to start? Okay, I guess I have three main main things that I wanted to point out that I loved about it. Um, one, 
the the soundtrack is gorgeous. It is by a well-known ambient group called Hammock. Uh, and despite the fact that I'm kind of a, a big ambient music head, I've, I've not actually listened to Hammock. Uh, but I immediately after this movie ended, went and downloaded their album, and I've listened to very little else since then. Um, lots of uh, quiet acoustic guitar compositions, um, but with these big swells of drones around them, lot, lots of use of uh, field noise, of you know crickets and locusts chirping and things like that. That, all, that might sound like you know, just typical, you know, the platonic ideal of what ambient music is, but this is really, really well done, really gorgeous, and like has this pure resonance to it. Um, so that is is an element of this thing that I love. It seems to fit hand in glove with how confident and and like pure his compositions are, and how clean everything looks. Uh, Hammock soundtrack just complements that wonderfully. Um, it's a very for my my second thing is it's a very emotionally overwhelming movie, uh, but in a way that is is muted at times. Like there are times where it feels like the emotions are just overflowing, like the movie is bursting at the seams with this sort of melancholy or or regret or or loss. Um, but a lot of times those moments will be. Um, repressed through music or you'll see them through glass or or blinds or something like that like i'm thinking specifically of a moment where Haley Lou richardson is explaining what moves her about the the architecture of this building um and you start to see like her eyes welling up um and just like how personal this this idea of this building is to her but as soon as she starts speaking her dialogue gets cut out and is replaced by the hammock score and i think that the movie very wisely knows that any articulation of her emotion would not be as effective as like this this universal language of of music like it it just like lets lets that emotion like flow out through the movie in that way as opposed to having you intellectualize it and, and you just can see by the way like you don't need to know what she's exactly saying you can see by the way she's articulating and moving you know her face and her hands and such like how passionate she is about this about what she's talking about yeah yeah all the all the acting here is tops too um, she's she's so good I, like Haley Lou Richardson <laughs> yeah. is so fantastic in this movie um and then I guess the third thing th- this doesn't feel particularly cinematic but it is important to my uh my experience with the film there are these two conversations in this movie that have like really shaken me up like no exaggeration they they have like change the way I think about a lot of things. Like the first conversation is um, in a library. Haley Richardson is talking to this. She works in a library. She's talking to this other library aide there. Um, and they're talking about the idea of uh, people's attention spans getting shorter. And her her friend makes the argument based on something he read that we're not losing our attention spans, but we are losing our interest in certain things. Our attention spans are still intact, but they're being reserved for for other newer developments in the world that we find more interesting. And there's this 
great sense of ambiguity and melancholy of like whether or not that is a good or an okay thing, because there's really no way to know without a broader scope of history, like looking back from the future. Um, and like, that's just a thing that I've thought about, um, you know, dealing with, uh, people of a slightly younger generation uh, than me. Like I work with teenagers and there's a stereotype about teenagers that are like, Oh, they don't have attention spans. They can't pay attention to anything. But I, I don't, I have always been skeptical about that idea. And this movie has like that conversation has pushed me into like a new realm of understanding about that. Um, and then the other conversation uh, relates to movies and and like how we talk about art, which is John Cho and Haley Richardson are standing in front of this building that, that I mentioned earlier that Haley Richardson really connects to. Um, and John Cho is asking like, why, why do you like this building? And she starts to like list off all these facts, all these typical readings of like why the building is the way it is and why it is important in the, you know, the canon of architecture or whatever. Um, and then he's in interrupts her and he says no that's what the building is like why do you like it what moves you about it and the reason that conversation has stuck with me is that I feel like I am probably guilty of that a lot like on this podcast and as a as a teacher of literature like it it becomes very easy to memorize this like rote list of like why something is good or why something is important but really you're just regurgitating what somebody else said about it you're not sharing your own personal experience with the thing and like why that thing affected you on a personal or emotional level um and you're not being genuine and like maybe you're not being honest with yourself about whether or not you actually like it um and like in a in a situation like we are in where such a huge part of our identities is tied to the art that we enjoy and the art that we like to talk about, um, that like starts to get you into this weird identity crisis of like, Oh God, who am I? If I don't actually know why I like the things that I like. Um, so I mean the movie, the movie like has been a trip. Um, and again, has this just pure emotional resonance to it that I have not been able to get out of my head since I watched it. Um, I really need to watch it again before the end of the year. Yeah. But um, I, other thoughts? I, I, no, I mean, it, it was it, when I finished watching it, I it was one of those where I just kind of sat there and stared at the screen while the, the credits kind of rolled for a while because I was it kind of just yeah, it, it kind of overwhelmed me. Um, and I, I, I almost was like, I could watch this again if if like. <laughs> like I thought for a, a long time about just about just starting it up again because my rent I was like I have this rental still for like 24 hours I could watch this again um yeah no I I I think that I'm so glad that you mentioned the scene where she's uh where, where they take out the dialogue and she's explaining uh you know while she's explaining why she loves that building because I just absolutely love that scene I think that you hit the nail on the head where this movie um it challenges you on um on just the articulation of 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 not just how you feel about art and and things like that but also just how you articulate um your feelings and in everything just about life because a lot of a lot of the the internal strife that John Cho's character is having is he hasn't talked to his father in over a year Um, they have this very strange relationship he says early on he talks about how 
he, you know, he, he doesn't like architecture, but there's various points where he's able to name drop, uh, you know, architectural knowledge that he has. Uh, he, at, w- at one point they're talking about this bridge and he, he mentions this anecdote from this book that he's, that he's just abs- like just recently read to Haley Lou Richardson. Um, but at the same time, you, you can, you understand that, that emotional gap from what does architecture um, mean to him as a person, and what does it mean to him in his relationship with his father? Um, and it's kind, of, and, it, and, it, and it's it's the same thing where I think Haley Lou Richardson's character understands that you know she's supposed to move on with her life, she's supposed to you know go to college and have those experiences, but I think that she also has so much tied to this familial duty that it 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 complicates and muddies the waters of the drama and i think that that's what makes it so compelling because the the it's not one of these where the characters don't know the right answer i think that they know what they're supposed to do but i think they're so the 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 miscommunications the on the inability to to break um a lot of these communicating gaps um you know doesn't allow them to to progress forward and i like that the movie um you know kind of punctures the those but it never it doesn't like have a tidy ending i like that it it leaves things somewhat ambiguous but at the same time it, it, it at least it still confronted them but it didn't tidy everything up at the end both characters do the thing that you know they should do by the end of the movie there doesn't feel great like you you kind of feel this pit in your stomach of of you know the the loss that comes along with any any sort of big life decision you make because you are changing paths and denying yourself a possible future and hope of a different future um and all that is tied into um the the centrality of like art in this movie and like how people relate to here it's architecture but in other contexts it could be movies it could be literature it could be drama it could be music whatever like how does your relationship with art and your relationship with the things you love inform your life decisions and your relationships with the, your loved ones people very close to you uh it's like it's man I, I'm. It's a very hard movie to talk about. Like I said at the beginning of this uh, this pitch, um, but like it real it really hits on a fundamental level. Yeah, no, I no, I totally agree. It's it's just there's a lot happening that that resonates with you, but it yeah you can't you can't it's so it's so experience based. It's it's very difficult to be like this is what this is what you know. It, this is what specifically worked for me. I feel like um, we had this but, conversation last year about Moonlight, um, as well as when we talked about Carol and uh, In the Mood for Love, like three three movies that we talked about a lot on the show last year. Movies that are so visual in the way that they communicate emotion that that it is very hard to art- articulate your reaction to it. You just kind of have to see the film. You have to experience it. So. People who are listening to this, like, please go on Amazon or iTunes and rent Columbus because it's not it's not going to play in a multiplex near you. You got to go seek it out, and you will be glad you did. Yeah, again, uh, Amazon, iTunes, all those places you can rent it. Yeah, I if you if you just kind of. <laughs> I don't know. It, you gotta be. You, you gotta be ready. It, it's it's a very quiet. It's a very still. Um, it's a very muted movie. But at, at the same time, I think that it really, it, like we've described, it really, it's gonna you know 
resonate and you know kind of dig up a lot of a lot of emotion from it even though it's kind of this this quiet movie uh but yeah columbus it's gonna be it's probably gonna be on my top list at the end of the year yeah yeah (laughs) um all right we're gonna take a short break we'll be back in part two continuing our series on the archers with 1946 a matter of life and death Hey Cinematariots, this is your co-host Lydia Creech with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time either. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company and we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a review on iTunes, four or five stars only. To help us reach more listeners per the algorithm gods. Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send us an email at Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, so we can hear from you guys for a change. I'd especially like to hear if you're a human and not an android who also likes Blade Runner, or maybe you have a suggestion of a movie you would really like to hear our opinions on. Regardless, let us know your thoughts and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes of the show. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions that we bring to you guys every week. So, to recap, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and please share with your friends and family. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. episode 170 of cinematary in this part we will be continuing our series on the archers with 1946's a matter of life and death uh the film star of course directed written produced by michael powell and emic pressburger uh it stars david niven uh, kim hunter roger livesey if you remember him from last week with colonel blimp and raymond massey and the film centers on british air force pilot peter carter whose plane is hit while he returns to england from a uh, bombing mission in World War II. Uh, while he's going down, he connects to a an, to an American radio operator, and the two share what they believe to be his final moments on Earth before he crashes. Somehow, though, he survives the plane crash, and he finds June, the radio operator, but is called to plead his case in the, quote, other world after they believe he has cheated death and needs to be there instead. Um, in America, the film went by the title Stairway to Heaven, um, the decision to film the scenes of the other world in black and white added to the complications of the film shoot. Uh, they were filmed in three strip technicolor, but the color was not fully developed, giving a pearly hue to the black and white shots. A process cited in the screen credits as uh, color and dye monochrome processed in te- technicolor. This reversed the effect in, uh, that, that it had in Wizard of Oz uh, and photographic dissolves between technicolor dye monochrome, the other world, and three strip technicolor earth are used several times during the film. 
A matter of life and death had an extensive pre-production period due to the to the complexity of the production. Uh, one scene, the huge escalator linking this world with the other, called Operation Ethel by the firm of engineers who constructed it against the Aegis of the t- uh, London P- Passenger Transport Board, took three months to make and cost £3,000, equivalent to £119,000 in 2016. Ethel had 106 steps, each 20 feet wide, and was driven by a 12-horsepower engine. Uh, the full shot was completed by hanging miniatures. The noise of the machinery prevented recording the soundtrack live, so all scenes with the escalator were dubbed in post-production other challenging sequences included the stop action stopped action uh, table tennis game uh, for which hunter and livesey were trained by champion tennis player table tennis players alan brook and victor barna the scene where carter washes up on the beach uh, the first scene was the first scene filmed where cinematographer jack cardiff fogged up the uh, camera lens with his breath to create a look he wanted and the uh, the final challenging sequence was the long 25 minute trial sequence at the end which required a set with a 350 foot long by 40 foot high back cloth um, according to the Guardian, Cardiff had assumed that Earth that the Earth sequences would be in black and white, and the other world would be in color. Again, taking from the model s- supplied by the Wizard of Oz, but Powell and Pressburger wanted the reverse. Their real world was made of golden light, pink roses, blue skies, and June scarlet lipstick. Heaven is all sparse and pearly monochrome shot by Cardiff on color stock without the usual dyes so that seamless dissolves could be affected between worlds. According to Powell in his A Life in Movies, the United States was the only market in which the film's name was changed, except that most European countries used a question of life and death rather than the matter of of life and death. The American title was the idea of Arthur Krim and Roger Benjamin, two lawyers just starting out in the film business who would be marketing the film in the U.S. and insisted, and they insisted that no film had ever done well there with the word death in the title. When Pressburger countered with the hit film Death Takes a Holiday, their response was to point out that it succeeded because the fa- very fact that death was on holiday meant that there was be no death in the film. <laughs> good, good logical. Uh... Uh, jumping jack there yeah somersault it just seems like such an american like yeah no we got this uh the producers took pains never to refer to the other world as heaven as they felt they that was too restrictive and limiting an introductory title screen repeated as the foreword to the 1946 novelization by eric warman contains an explicit statement this is the story of two worlds the one we know and another which exists only in the mind of the young airman whose life and imagination have been violently shaped by war, but goes on to say any resemblance to any other world known or unknown is purely coincidental. The film was originally suggested by a British government departure to improve relations between the Americans in the UK and the British public following Powell and Pressburger's contributions to the sphere in a Canterbury tale two years earlier, though neither film received any government funding nor input on plot or production. There was a degree of public hostility toward American service stationed in the UK prior to the D-Day invasion of Europe. They were viewed by some as latecomers to the war and as, quote, overpaid, oversexed, and overhear by a public that had suffered three years of bombing and rationing, with many of their own men fighting abroad. The premise of the film is a simple inversion. The British pilot gets the pretty American woman rather than the other way around. And the other and the only national bigotry against the British is voiced by the first American casualty of the Revolutionary War. Raymond Massey, portraying an American, was a Canadian national at the time the film was made, but became a naturalized American citizen afterward. Which that was a little 
interesting because of of course the first American casualty of the Revolutionary War was Crispic Attucks, a African American. But regardless, I was I I thought that was interesting. Um, J.K. Yeah, we'll just, you know, okay. Um, I thought this was an interesting fact. J.K. Rowling and Daniel Radcliffe, while discussing the near-death or afterlife sequences from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, said that this film was their favorite and something that each had on their mind while working on those scenes in the Harry Potter movie. Um, in the in the Observer in 1946, C. A. Lujan complained that the, that the film quote leaves us in great doubts whether it is intended to be serious or gay. Uh, New, the New York Times in 1946 said that it is the delicate charm, the adult humor, and visual vir, uh, virtuosity of this Michael Powell and McPressburger film render it indisputably the best of a batch of Christmas shows. The wit and agility of the producers, who also wrote and directed the job, is given range to the picture in countless delightful ways. In the use, for instance, of Technicolor to photograph the earthly scenes in Sepia, in which to vision the hygienic region, regions of the beyond, so that the heavenly messenger descending is prompted to remark ah how one is starved for starved for technicolor up there in uh, 1995 roger ebert said that stairway to heaven is one of the most audacious films ever made in its grandiose vision and in the cozy english way it's expressed so on that note um yeah, what did you guys what did you guys think of a matter and a matter of life and death? I'm gonna go ahead and and put Candace on the spot and, and ask you first. I really liked it. Um, I didn't really know what to expect going in, um, but I loved the premise. I loved the way that it was set up, um, and I know we don't get to spend like a lot of time developing the characters, but I did like the characters as well what did you all think about it for me this is a movie that's been on my radar for a long time uh, but i'm only just now getting around to it thanks to this series uh, I've, I've seen two uh, Powell and Pressburger films in the past. I've seen The Red Shoes and I've seen uh, Black Narcissus. And both of those films, I think, maybe led me to expect something a little bit different from what Matter of Life and Death is. Uh, Red Shoes and Black Narcissus are very uh, formal movies. They're kind of serious movies, but they're, they're also very breathtaking in their visuals, especially you know the central dance sequence of The Red Shoes, which I've talked about on the podcast before. Um, it's just really moving. Um, and so I was expecting this to be along those same lines, but elevated in the way that Powell and Pressburger, I imagine, could do if, when they were telling a story about uh, the afterlife and these grand ideals of life and death and sin and redemption and things like that. It, and I, I was expecting a much more serious film than this ended up being. Um, the opening sequence is... Uh, really moving and, and, and really uh, emotional and how quickly it establishes this connection between the, the airman and the telephone operator. Um, and then the movie, after he dies and, and, and wakes up still alive, takes a lot of turns that I was not quite expecting. It's, it's kind of kooky at times and uh, just sort of silly at, at others, you know, 
there's there's a long sequence involving people playing ping pong that I was just not not really ready for. And then you have you have this uh, not angel character but conductor character they call him, uh, played by uh, Marius Goring, I think is how you pronounce his name, um, who's just uh, very flamboyant and and silly and off the cuff, um, which yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Um, And so I was kind of taken aback by the weird tone that the movie took in the first half. Um, And then in the last section, when it becomes He's he's like the embodiment um, of a French stereotype. It becomes very heavy (laughs) and philosophical and historical and about the sins of England and how uh, other countries' uh, inability to forgive England, its past uh, transgressions in the form of colonialism or, or, or whatever else. And I, I was just not ready for, for any of that. Like, I don't know. It it just kind of took me by surprise. I don't really know how I feel about it. I don't know if I can say I liked it or disliked it. I'm just, like, still processing, like, what this movie even is. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, really, I really liked it. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess since I'm kind of coming in, I think that this kind of seems much more closely tied with what I saw last week with Colonel Blimp than probably the Red Shoes or Black Narcissus. Um, because Colonel Blimp, while it, it, it Lydia and I talked about it, it's dealing with a lot of these um, kind of somewhat similar like themes of nationalism and, and feels very embedded in, in World War II England. Uh, it does have this kind of um, lightness, this this yeah this kind this kind well this this classical hollywood um you know suaveness to it that so when when that was happening this one that really didn't throw me off because i was i, I was seeing that last week um this one though i uh, lydia and i talked last week about kind of the audacity of the some of the camera movements and how it transitioned through time in colonel blimp and this one i was more taken with a lot of the, a lot of the, I mentioned in the in the notes, but the the risks that they kind of took in shifting between worlds, um, and just the kind of the broadness of of this whole concept. It, it was such a high concept, kind of, in in how how they were able to kind of establish the 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 strange rules of of the you know the the world and the other world um i thought was 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 something i i i feel like there was much more legwork done in something like this than a movie that i saw kind of tied to it as kind of a sister film in uh it's a wonderful life you know the frank capra movie which i i I saw in while i was researching a lot of people referencing that i think that one has this connection to um this it kind of has a little bit of a high concept to it but i think that a matter of life and death there's like i said there's a lot more legwork put into it where there's a lot more rules and regulations and how stuff works than I feel like it's it's a wonderful life is pretty straight laced um uh, but yeah, I, I and I, I agree with Candace. I, I thought that David Niven and, and Kim Hunter were, were were two you know good lead characters. Uh, I, I felt like you probably could have given um, a little bit more time to establish. Uh, 
Kim Hunter's character June. Um, I, I I agree. The opening sequence is very is very moving in the way that they move around the cockpit of the plane yeah. to, to kind of establish is feels like it something. It feels like a world all of its own. Yeah, and it, well, it just just the, the 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 structure of how they move around it, it feels like something that should be happening. You know, 50, 60 years in the future in terms of just filmmaking. I, I thought that it was very. It felt very new. Um, and I think that she's fantastic in the kind of give, you know, back and forth that she and David Niven have in that scene. But once he lands in, you know, he lands and they, they kind of start establishing their relationship, a lot of developing her, um, relationship with him kind of is sidelined with this plot about the world and the other world and what he needs to do to get back and and then they bring in the Roger uh lives uh, lives character as the doctor who kind of and I just it, it I felt like there could, you could have established a little bit more weight in that relationship and so while the ending sequences were were I, I you know I thought that the the trial sequence was was very impressive and I I kind of got into that um, they have the last sequence where, you know, he's they're, they're kind of forcing him to pick between her and in in this other world, and I don't, it, it just it didn't have the emotional weight that I felt like it could have because I just didn't feel like the relate. I think I felt like they did a good job of introducing the relationship, but it just felt like it didn't. It wasn't established more as it went in. I, what did you guys think? I, I think that they feel a little overly confident with like how well they've established the romance. I, I agree that it is flawlessly introduced and then it's not developed after that, right? The, this movie wants to have a, a love conquers all ending at the end, which is fine. Like, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with having that as the sentiment at the end of your movie about life and death and the universe and everything. Um, but it's very hard for me to buy this couple as like the couple who like breaks the laws of the universe, their love is so strong because it's been about two hours since I've really seen that love connection. Yeah. Candace, did you, uh, what did you think about the the relationship? Yeah, I agree that like, I like them together and I love the way that it starts out, but it was, it started to get a little, um, hard to believe that this is a stake your life on it. And I guess your existence on it, love when you have like a borrowed 20 hours to make this love possible. Yeah. It, it just kind of seems like, um, I don't know. It, it, she's, she's consistently there for the rest of the movie, but <laughs> she's consistently there. That, that she's is what you can say with her character. Yeah. She's consistently <laughs> there, but like she's, it's, it's, there's, it's not like she's real. I mean, for God's sake, when he like breaks from his like spell or whatever, where he's, uh, a, a couple point, like the first name he says is the name of the doctor, the Roger Lacey <laughs> character. And I thought that that would be the most awkward thing. Like this is your, this is your, you know, planetary universal love. And he wakes up and goes like, what is it? Frank or whatever, Bob? No, is it, what is it? Like Fred or Frank or whatever. He's just like Frank. And I was like, Oh, that would ruin the buzz you know it's like i'm so excited that he's coming back to life and he's saying frank while we're talking about character relationships i don't know like how much in how invested i can get in that doctor character like he just he gets introduced as someone who is important and knows things and the movie just 
asks us to accept that like he is the solution to all their problems for for the rest of the film and he kind of is um but that i feel like that's kind of an uninteresting way to tell the story do you guys disagree um i don't know I, I, the his character didn't necessarily throw me off yeah it didn't i don't i guess i agree that it didn't really establish like what his purpose was outside of being this doctor like it didn't it didn't back up why we should believe him as this important character he kind of just came in and they're going hey this guy's important um i did really like roger uh his livesy's performance i thought that especially kind of once his character i guess spoiler alert dies and goes to the other world to help with um the this 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 the trial case you know the the trial and that whole sequence i thought he does a great job kind of batting off of the Raymond Massey character, um, but no, I do I do agree. His his character is just kind of tossed in, and they and they go, he's important, and then we we kind of move on and just accept it because again, I kind of accepted it because he was in the last movie, and I was like, oh, it's it's Colonel Blimp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Candace, what did you think? Um, yeah, I just was like, oh well, if he's important, then I guess we're just gonna have to go with he's important. Um, I didn't really understand the creeping on the town with his little that was weird periscope yeah. telescope thing i guess it's is meant- that supposed to make us feel like he's smart because he knows what's going on with everybody else i feel like it's meant to establish him as this sort of god on earth character who's just looking over everyone else he's, he has this omniscient presence um but I I think that there's an unintentional way you can read that where he just seems creepy as opposed to, you know, all powerful, all knowing, like someone you should trust. You could you could read him as someone you definitely should not trust because he's looking at you and you're not when you don't want him to be. Yeah, no, that's 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 very true. Um, what did you all uh, think of uh, kind of going back to the direction, uh, you know, the, the you know, Powell and Pressburger, what? You know, again, let's the, the kind of structure of how they they flipped in between the the real world and this other world. Uh, I, again, I, I established the beginning. You know, they talked a lot in when I was researching about the kind of bleeding in between this this monochrome technic uh, the, the monochrome in the technicolor and how it was this kind of this this complicated process. I mean, did you feel like it was something that was justified because those sequences and the transition between the two? places worked i mean were you able to follow what was happening was it effective okay yeah i thought it was effective um i think you did a really good job of you know demarcating when you're in one world versus the other and i think that the lack of color uh for me at least like helped sell that there was um a reason to keep fighting to stay in our world um because it really made this other world uh, like while it seemed nice and you know you get these cool wings and everything was clean and modern looking um like the color just gives a life to our world that just yeah. i don't know that made it seem a little like helped sell me at least on why even if you didn't have someone that you love that you would want to stay there well and it's also i guess you got to think of the the historical context that you have this 1946 you know we're in the we're in the middle of you know we have world war ii happening um you got to figure that there while last week we talked about 
the government, you know, having a lot of, you know, strife and struggle with with Colonel Blimp and the message that it was portraying. Um, I don't think that the that Powell and Pressburger were were anti the overall goal of what they were, you know, what England's trying to accomplish in World War II. They were just much more critical of the uh, the the small specifics of, of how they were trying to go about that. And so I think I, I got to feel like having doing the reverse of of wizard of oz where um you know the real world's black and white and then she goes to this fantasy world that's cult you know beautiful technicolor and having the real world be color while the the other world is 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 monochrome i think that there, there's a little bit of a propaganda just establishing some you know i think that there's a propaganda element to that decision just because they want to i think that the people of britain probably are probably don't see maybe that beauty at that period of time like you know you know it's 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 kind of they're they're they were dealing with bombing and rationing and all this you know constantly under attack and whenever you know a lot of the real world stuff is happening especially when they are they're in devon and in the fields and on the beach you know there's just this this radiant beauty to it that scene where they're in the garden um when the 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 french stereotype character shows up for the first time is so beautiful when his when his appearance happens like all the colors just kind of you know glide over i think that there's a little bit of that there's a wonderful pan a wonderful pan over the the pink flowers in that scene where you really lose all sense of space like you feel like most of these things were probably shot in a studio set but there's this odd camera movement that seems like it goes really far in a lot of directions and it's hard to tell like where you are and like what direction you were facing uh, but there's just like these layers upon layers of, of flowers like Powell and Pressburger are really good at, at creating um, like I don't know this stage for their characters to inhabit and yeah. that's a really good and, example and I think it. that there's a there's much more of a staged quality to this movie um, especially at the end when they're having this very staged trial um, to, to to matter of life and death compared to Colonel Blimp which felt more much more natural um, it's a little bit of a different movie but yeah, I don't, that, that's just kind of, kind of my theory that I, I think when it comes to the color to the moniker, I think that they you they want to add a little bit of of a of a, the audience they, they they hope will would rather stay in the real world rather than the other world, even though you know you get to hang out with. Plato and Beethoven and all those and all those guys. It's still monochrome and looks a little uh, a little stagey. That's a really good theory. Uh, the only thing that I had to connect it to was Wings of Desire from about forty years after. Vim Vendors does the same trick where it's a movie from an angel's perspective. Angel's world is black and white. Human's world is color, and he uses color to show you the perspective shift, like who you are following. Um, and that movie leans much more into the question of like, um, what is beneficial about being human period, as opposed to inhabiting some sort of, uh, other realm that we might imagine exists. Uh, whereas here I do, I do after your explanation, Zach, that makes perfect sense that like, it's much more of a political thing, especially with how much of a. Uh, historical context they put it in with the trial scene at the end i it just just from doing research on both this film and the last one there is just this strong political through line that they have uh that 
it's it's like it's it's somewhat propaganda, but at the same time, it's not. They're not you know completely just you know going head over heels for what the government wants. But like I said, they 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 definitely agree with the overall goal, but they're also gonna gonna criticize it. So um, yeah. well, they believe they present the idea that the British government is almost irredeemable by by the end of the movie. But of course, love conquers all, and all that. Um, well, sure. Um, I mean, what did what did you guys think of that that whole sequence when um, the you know the two characters are going back and forth, and he's kind of challenging Britain on, and he brings out the the various characters from India and China and and, and you know these countries that as people who you know study history would know, you know Britain has had this large impact on on these areas. You know, did that did that message work for you, or was it a little too heavy handed? I think that the the message works, um, or in the the conflict that it introduces works. I don't know if the the solution that the film offers necessarily uh, um, if this if the solution feels earned I guess I guess this goes back to the whole question of how much you have invested in that romance and the the filmmakers are counting on that romance to be the thing that you know solves all the problems of the universe and then they introduce some really heavy uh, political stuff at the end and it feels like a bit of a a weak solution to that problem but um, maybe we are not giving the archers enough credit for being subversive maybe they do want us to uh, get the sense that like these are very complicated uh issues of like legacy uh, a legacy of exploitation and oppression that we cannot hand wave away with like oh let's all just love each other um but i don't know that that may be being too generous i don't know yeah candace what do you think i thought it was interesting that the british are the ones like you're rightfully so thrown on the bus, but like the Americans get a a free pass for yeah. any colonization. We should not get. We one. did not earn that free pass. <laughs> yeah, slavery is not mentioned in all the historical crimes of uh, of the world. We're like, oh yeah, we're great. What are you talking about? We'll sweep those under the rug. Well, again, they like I said at the beginning, they swept. Um, like whenever the American, the first American casualty guy shows up, I was like, hold on, he's white. Like. I know a little bit about the American Revolution. I'm going to tell you that's. I'm like we're already we're already treading <laughs> on on interesting ground there. Um, all right, as we as we kind of wrap up, any any closing thoughts on matter of life and death? Well, we haven't really talked that much about the visuals of the film. Like we've talked about the stage and the 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 rose uh, set and things like that. But one of my main impressions of Powell and Pressburger is that they just re- really love creating spaces and, and creating these these visual flourishes of, of color and, and set design. Um, and here, it does feel a little bit more stagey than what I am used to seeing them do, uh, but they definitely have these very flashy moments where, for example, they are... Um, slowly transitioning between color and black and white for example um or you have the 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 stairway to heaven sequence which gave the american version of the film its name like that that is such a uh, a, a beautiful image that will be seared into my brain like long after i forget all the specifics of like the characters and the political implications of this film 
um, it's just a really awesome uh, um, like contraption that they have built to to convey this idea of somebody being slowly like pulled away from the mortal world. Um, and then you have the the things where like they're they're freezing the frame and and having characters walk around uh, uh, characters who have been stuck in time. Uh, so my my takeaway in terms of the visuals is like they're they're very flashy in moments, uh, but it it doesn't it doesn't have this overall aesthetic sense that you know uh, carries through the entire film like something like the red shoes does. Yeah, no, and, and I and I would definitely agree with that. And I think that I don't, there was something about the visuals that was much more striking to me in Colonel Blimp than in this one. It, this one was fine, but um, I think Lydia and I talked about it a lot in the last episode. Like just some of the stuff that they did visually to tell that story was very impressive. Um, Candace, what any, any any closing thoughts um, on Matter of Life and Death for you? Yeah, um, to me, one thing that really stood out was the um, score for the film, especially the way in the beginning and with um, the other world that clocks and that ticking clock sound um, was so prevalent. And it kind of reminded me of Dunkirk a little bit, that same kind of anxiety producing effect of this ticking clock, even though the the clocks sound different in both of those movies. Um, this one has more of a chimey feel, but still I felt like you know, it really did a great job of tying in that uh, feeling of passing time and borrowed time. You would you would assume that uh, that Christopher Nolan was was probably thinking of this movie because that there is a lot of connections between the plot of Dunkirk and and this not just the World War II but you know just the the act of of, of a pilot you know struggling to to you know keep the the plane up after being hit. Huh. Um, yeah, I, I I'll I'll finish up saying i i like this one again i think i i really liked colonel blimp last week <laughs> i i really really enjoyed that one uh i th- this one was 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 solid i you know it it seemed much more in line with a with kind of the classical hollywood sense um and like i mentioned before with the relationship i felt like if that was maybe developed a little bit more it might have resonated some you know a little bit better with me but for the most part I, I really did enjoy it it you know i think i'm two for two so far with their movies but i think that with compared to colonel blimp which just had this narrative audacity this visual audacity and these these really uh moving performances um it just kind of you know, didn't add up, you know, as much to, you know, at least have as much of an effect on me as, as, as that one did. Um, but I still think it's, um, another, you know, I, I, I still really like the way that, uh, these two guys direct their movies <laughs> and structure their movies. I think it's still, it's still very interesting. Um, especially with the, with like, uh, with, like we've said, this this kind of high high concept idea that they've that they were playing with in this one. Um, yeah, I guess that'll uh, that'll wrap up this episode though of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter at Twitter handle at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we t- post all of the movies that we talked about in this episode. Next week we we'll, we will be continuing our Powell and Pressburger series on the archers with 1947's 
Black Narcissus, which Andrew mentioned earlier. Um, anything, anything to... I don't know if you're on that episode. Anything to preview before we go to that? I am not on that episode, but I would recommend that... Uh, it's it's not a movie that I had a particularly great experience with when I watched it, um, but I was because I watched it in the middle of the day on my home television, which was not that big, and that is a movie that I get the feeling that you need to watch as huge as possible in the dark because it's all about the scale of the images. So if you have the ability to do that. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.